0: Chapter twenty OF ONE LIFE, ONE LOVE by Mary ELIZABETH BRADDON. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Twenty Scattered to the Winds I have seen that man again. He was lounging on the grassy bank above the lock this evening in the sunset, as Cyril and I came through in our wherry there the creature sprawled looking hideously metropolitan in his black cutaway coat and black felt hat against the background of flowering grasses and the ragged old hedgerow tangled with woodbine and starred with blackberry blossom i pointed him out to cyril that is the bookbinder man who haunts your father i said and then i told him how this detestable person had been at river lawn inquiring for uncle ambrose did my father see him asked cyril evidently for he was nearly an hour at the cottage i saw him leave my father may have kept him waiting for the best part of that time answered cyril you know how absent-minded he is when he is among his books yes indeed said i and i hope that odious man was sitting on the little oak bench in the lobby nursing his hat all the time the last entry is two days old and now i have to record the strangest event in my life since i have come to womanhood an event so startling that i am almost too agitated to write about it although it happened yesterday but the record must be written for this book is to be all my life a faithful history of the romance and reality of my existence of hard facts and idle dreams of every act of folly and every gleam of sense in a word this book is to be a photograph of me a photograph in pen and ink by an unskilled photographer i awoke yesterday morning with that curious feeling with which i have so often awakened of late a feeling of vague wonder as i float gradually from sleep to waking i ask myself what is it i know there is something amiss in my life but what but what and then i remember that i am engaged to be married and that october is very near and then i think how good it would be for everybody if i were to fall ill and die and leave cyril free to marry somebody who would really love him and be honestly glad to be his wife there are such girls no doubt i believe i could name seven between henley and reading that was the feeling with which i awoke yesterday a lovely day and the church clock striking six with a clear and silvery sound that means a west wind and my room filled with the sweetness of the white clematis which grows over all this end of the house I was out in the garden by seven and breakfasted with mother uncle ambrose and cyril at eight there is a tennis tournament on at the rectory and cyril and beatrice reardon were to play the final yesterday between eleven and one i was expected to look on but my early walk in the garden had given me a headache or something else had so i told cyril i could not stand the noise and glare of the tennis court at the rectory where all the reardon family and hangers-on would be bawling and laughing and making themselves generally detestable to any one with a headache so i said i would go for a gentle walk while he was finishing the match and be home in time to congratulate him at luncheon for you are sure to win said i i don't know about that beatrice is a very fine player she ought to be said i for she thinks of nothing else to hear her talk one would suppose the honour of england was to be maintained by tennis well it is a fine manly game and suits the girls of this generation he replied and we walked together as far as the rectory gate don't tire yourself darling he said looking at me ever so kindly with his honest eyes as we parted and then i went for a long and lonely ramble in the berkshire lanes those berkshire lanes have been my one sovereign cure for the headache ever since my head was old enough to ache a quiet walk between those flowering hedgerows those primrose and violet banks those avenues of lords and ladies and dog-roses and woodbines has always soothed my aching head if the sweet air and the scent of the flowers could only cure my aching heart as well i thought yesterday but heartache is not cured so easily i went for a long long ramble without thought of cyril's warning rather wishing to tire myself into a state of drowsy forgetfulness before i crept home the church clock struck one as i came across the meadows in sight of the village the aftermath was deep and full of flowers and the narrow footpath between the tall grass and the hedgerow was the quietest haven in which to think of one's troubles i felt sorry i was so near home when i came to the little gate that opened out of the meadow into a deep lane leading directly to our own road river lawn was in front between me and the thames and uncle ambrose's cottage was on my left hand as i turned my face to the river i was lingering at the gate in a dreamy mood when i heard footsteps in the lane i thought they might belong to one of those everlasting reardons and as i wasn't equal to meeting a reardon i drew back behind a bushy blackthorn that grew beside the gate and watched the passer-by there was more than one two men went slowly by in earnest and as i thought in angry conversation though the tones of the one who was talking when they passed the gate was suppressed almost to a whisper these two were uncle ambrose and the french bookbinder scarcely had they passed the gate when another man followed stealthily evidently listening to their conversation the third man was cyril cyril my betrothed husband cyril the pattern of honesty and honour creeping at his father's heels and acting the degrading part of listener i could hardly believe my eyes i was shocked horrified disgusted and yet after thinking the whole thing over during a most painful reverie i was obliged to confess to myself that if the opportunity had occurred to me i might have done the same thing the persistent intrusions of the frenchman are not to be endured without protest of some kind and i think cyril was justified in listening to any conversation in which that man bore a part in order to protect his good easy and most unworldly wise father from being imposed upon yes after serious reflection i found excuses for my poor cyril although the sight of that creeping figure with head bent forward to listen gave me a dreadful shock a greater shock was to come a few hours after a shock which agitates my heart and nerves at this moment not knowing how i ought to take it whether i ought to be glad or sorry glad i cannot be recalling my poor cyril's white agonized face as he talked to me by the river at five o'clock yesterday afternoon sorry i cannot be when i remember how cruelly the tie with which i had bound myself weighed upon my spirits it was late when i went into the house but no one had gone to lunch mother was sitting alone in the morning-room her work-basket was on one side of her chair her book-table on the other but she was neither reading nor working and i thought she looked worried and anxious uncle ambrose among his books as usual i suppose said i feeling myself a dreadful hypocrite though after all there had been time enough for him to get back to the library since he passed me in the lane no doubt answered mother he went across to the cottage soon after breakfast mother said i if i were you i would take him away from berkshire let us all go to salzburg or the dolomites or auvergne or somewhere at least until october this place doesn't suit uncle ambrose he is not happy and you are not happy our lives are beginning to be a failure there is something wrong somewhere yes answered my mother gravely there is something wrong your stepfather is out of health there is some depressing influence at work i have done all i can but i cannot make him happy poor mother there was such a settled sadness in her tone that the tears rushed to my eyes and it was all i could do not to sob aloud i understood her secret thoughts so well she had done all she could she had sacrificed her freedom her fidelity to her first love the idolized husband of her youth out of gratitude to this faithful friend she had put every selfish thought and feeling aside in order to reward his devotion and the sacrifice had been useless he was not happy in one vivid glance i saw my own future fashioned after the semblance of my mother's life to-day i saw myself the wife of a man whom i could not love and i saw him unhappy in the discovery which no loyal effort of mine could keep from him poor mother poor daughter it was nearly three o'clock when mother and i went into the dining-room and by that time i had contrived to cheer her with talk about the books we had been reading lately and about a possible run to the continent in the early part of september We talked of Auvergne and of Cauteray, both of which districts were still untrodden ground for us, and untrodden ground has always the attraction of an earthly paradise. There was no sign of Cyril. "'He must have lunched at the rectory,' said my mother. "'Rather bad manners on his part. He ought to have come to lay his laurels at your feet.' "'His laurels?' "'Ah, yes, the result of the final. "'The prize is a copy of the Idols of the King bound in vellum,' and if cyril wins i am to have the book beatrice will be savage at losing it though i don't believe she ever read twenty consecutive lines of poetry unless it was john Gilpin. after our feeble attempt at luncheon mother went off on one of her charitable expeditions i knew that would last for a good two hours so i resigned myself to take tea alone unless cyril should reappear i was really anxious to see him as i wanted to hear what he had overheard in the lane and i fancied he would not keep his discovery from me although he would expect to be reproved for his unworthy behaviour in playing the spy upon his father of course there could be nothing to the discredit of uncle ambrose in his discovery only the revelation of that dear good man's weakness where anything in the way of a book is concerned such a devoted lover of books would allow himself to be imposed upon even by the man whose trade was to bind them indeed it is extraordinary the importance which these book lovers attach to the outer covering of a book i have seen volumes in uncle ambrose's library with landscapes painted on the edges of the paper under the gilding a decoration which has cost two or three pounds per volume yet the book is put in a shelf where nobody sees the painted edges from year's end to year's end i ordered my tea upon the terrace exactly where i had my tea-table that afternoon when mr florestan and i took tea tete-a-tete somehow haphazard i think i had taken napier's wanderings on the Spy from a shelf in the library and the book seemed to carry me nearer to scotland and to him no doubt he is enjoying himself immensely in that sportsman's paradise thought i and i turned over the leaves to see if napier said anything about grouse it was a delicious afternoon with a hot sun and a blue sky a sky flecked with faint feathery cloudlets it was the kind of afternoon which used to mean unqualified bliss and even in spite of my troubles i could not help feeling a kind of sensuous content as i lolled back in my pet wicker chair and watched the ripple of the river and the gentle movement of the willows where the opposite bank curved inwards towards the broad reach over which the church tower cast its solemn shadow the second quarter after four chimed from the dear old tower the tea-table stood ready the little copper kettle hissed gaily but there was still no sign of virgil i began to feel just a little uneasy about him for it was unlike his usual way to be anywhere within reach and not come to hunt me out every hour or so either for a ramble or a ride a single or a row on our beloved river it was nearly five when i saw a young man coming across the lawn to the terrace where i was sitting a young man in tennis flannels such as those i had seen cyril wear when he started for the tournament that morning a man of cyril's height and bulk but not the least like cyril in figure or walk as i saw him in the distance for this man stooped as cyril never did and this man's step had none of the elastic force of cyril's rapid movements yet this man with the bent shoulders and heavy walk was cyril and no one else cyril transformed by some heavy trouble he came slowly to the empty chair at my side and seated himself in silence and looked at me with eyes whose expression i can never forget all frivolous words died on my lips i could only watch him in mute expectancy daisy he began in a voice that was even stranger than his altered looks i think you know that i have loved you honestly truly and dearly i am sure you have dear i answered with a sinking heart knowing that i myself dared not have said as much of my own truth and honesty i have not gone into hysterics about my passion or written verses or done any other of the wild things that i might have done had we met as strangers at venice the other day and fallen in love with each other at first sight i have taken everything for granted too much for granted perhaps i grew up loving you from the time i was a lad at school and you a kind of household fairy in a white frock with bright hair and dove-like eyes i went on loving you and claimed you as my own almost as if i had a right to you as if the trouble of wooing and winning were not for me since my own true love had been born and reared and educated expressly to make me happy that is how i felt about you margaret and perhaps i have seemed a tame moor in consequence no 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 i exclaimed eagerly you have been all that is good and true it is i who am weak and changeable and frivolous it is i who am to blame my too-ready tears stopped me I thought that he had discovered my guilty secret, that he had found out somehow that I had left off caring for him and had begun to care for Gilbert Florestan. I was going to throw myself on my knees at his feet when he stopped my uncertain movement with a hand laid heavily upon my arm. I doubt if he had heard one word of my self accusation. That is all over and done with, Daisy, he said. Our wooing at Venice and elsewhere, and all the happy days and hours we have had together, and all our plans for the future and the rooms that have been made beautiful for us to live in and the life we were to lead all those things must be as a dream that we have dreamed and you must teach yourself to forget me and to forget that you were ever my promised wife yes he had found out all the truth i told myself my head drooped forward upon my clasped hands and i had what the reardon girls call a good cry they have a good cry about the most contemptible things if their dressmaker disappoints them or if bad weather prevents an intended tennis match but this good cry of mine seemed wrung out of a breaking heart i felt so sorry for cyril so ashamed of myself i did not for one moment doubt that he had discovered my inconstancy and that he was setting me free to marry mr florestan if mr florestan cared to have the reversion of such a worthless weathercock my darling don't cry so bitterly he pleaded more tenderly than i ever remembered him to have done in all our foolish little love scenes you are breaking my heart and i have need to be strong and stern to face a cruel future you think that i am fickle i said at last and not worthy of your trust you fickle you unworthy he cried why my dearest i know that you are the truest and purest of creatures it is no doubt of you that influences me There is an insuperable bar to our marriage, an obstacle which you and I have nothing to do. Is it my mother who is trying to part us? I asked wonderingly, for I thought mother might have read my secret. I had never been able to pretend much in my talks with her. No, Daisy, your mother has nothing to do with this matter. She knows nothing of my determination yet, and I am going to ask you a favour. What is that? i want you to let your mother suppose that it is you who have broken the engagement you can say that you did not know your own mind when you accepted me that you were too precipitate The sort of thing girls say pretty often i believe i don't think as society is constituted nowadays there will be very much astonishment at the alteration of our plans i hope before a year is over that my darling will have found a worthier lover and as i shall be far away no doubt people will soon forget me you will be far away i echoed where in australia i shall try to begin a new life on the other side of the world breed sheep on the darling downs or turn wine-grower heaven knows what but anyhow my future shall be as far remote from my past as distance can make it a new light flashed upon me and i began to think that the question of money was at the bottom of poor cyril's trouble and that in honour i was bound to refuse this offered release however i might wish to cancel the past i could not be so mean as to break my engagement because my lover had grown suddenly poor i begin to suspect your motive i said seriously uncle ambrose has lost his fortune its coming was like a fairy tale and it has vanished like gold in fairyland oh cyril surely you know that i never cared about your father's wealth or thought whether you were rich or poor mother and i have plenty of money for all of us my dearest i know your generous heart no it is not a money trouble that has darkened my days but there is a trouble and it is one which i must keep locked up in my own breast till i die it is something about yourself i speculated pitying him too much to leave the mystery unquestioned some mortal disease perhaps you have consulted a physician who has told you that you may die suddenly and you fear to make me unhappy no daisy medical men and i have had few dealings since i was vaccinated don't ask any more questions dear i dare not tell you more than i told you at first all is over between us and my life must be spent thousands of miles away i could not trust myself within reach of an express train that would bring me back to you he bent over me as i sat motionless with wonder looking at the bright water and the lights and shadows on the opposite shore he pressed his lips upon my forehead in a farewell kiss good-bye my margaret my pearl mine no more he said and then turned away and walked slowly across the lawn by the way he had come i heard the gate in the fence open and shut and i knew that he had gone across the road to his father's cottage i sat looking at the water in a mute dull wonder while quarter after quarter chimed from the old grey tower and the shadows deepened and the golden lights grew dim upon beech and oak and the willows in the foreground changed from green to grey the footmen carried away the tea-table in their horrid mechanical way which makes one think that they would clear a table and arrange a room in just the same leisurely fashion if one were lying dead upon the carpet the evening darkened and still I sat there wondering and amusing. I was free, free to love whom I pleased, free to marry anyone who cared to ask for my hand. I had the liberty for which my soul had longed ever since I left Paris. And yet I could not feel glad. I could not be glad while he was so sorry. Poor Cyril! My first playfellow, my boyish sweetheart, the first admirer who ever told me my face was worth looking at, how well i remembered those first compliments and how flushed and flattered i felt when the young oxonian told me he liked the gown i wore or that my eyes looked dark under the shadow of my sailor hat how foolish and vain i must have been when i was fifteen and wore my first long gown no i could not be glad i felt such an impostor surely i ought to have confessed the truth in that last moment i ought to have told him plainly and candidly that my heart had gone from him months ago and that the fancied treasure which he was renouncing was the poorest thing in the world a jilt's unstable affection there might have been some consolation for him in knowing the worthlessness of the thing he surrendered and yet and yet it might have been cruel to undeceive him it was better for him perhaps to believe that he had received measure for measure that i had loved him to the last if ever i marry it will be years hence i dare say i told myself and he will be in australia happily married himself before that time this was a comforting thought but even this could not prevent me feeling very unhappy about cyril and his mysterious trouble what was it had he gambled had he kept race-horses had he forged one hears and reads of things quite as extraordinary as forging on the part of a seemingly honourable young man and the trouble was obviously a very serious one it might be some casual forgery executed on the spur of the moment after a wine at christchurch when the poor dear fellow hardly knew what he was doing i could fancy the whole scene some wicked collegian several years older than cyril putting a pen into his hand and making him sign a bond or an i o u or a bill or something with somebody else's name the dean's perhaps to redeem his losses at cards he has often told me how wild they are at Christchurch, and how they throw one another into the fountain and smash furniture and play poker and do all manner of dreadful things the more i thought of cyril's unhappiness the more i felt inclined to believe that it must date from his college days it was a sword that had been hanging over his head for a long time and the hair had broken to-day there was another idea which struck me afterwards as i walked back to the house What if Cyril, in a weak, good-natured way, had got himself engaged to another girl, a girl he detested, and felt that honor obliged him to marry her because she was of inferior rank and because he detested her? This would account for his resolution to go to the other side of the world and begin a new life. He would marry this person and take her straight off to the Antipodes, where no one belonging to his own world would ever see him in his disgrace. Poor Cyril! my heart bled for him as i thought what his life would be like married to a vulgar woman who would misplace the aspirate and talk of him as mr hardin it would be too dreadful and i felt as if i would have rather sacrificed my own happiness than that he should be so utterly lost mother came out of the drawing-room window to meet me as i drew near the house she had just returned from her visiting having tasted half a dozen cups of tea in a half-dozen tiny sitting-rooms and had heard no end of sad stories yet she looked happier than usual for she had been giving happiness to others i had been keeping my heart locked against that dear mother for months but now i was determined to tell her as much of the truth as i was free to tell i put my arms around her neck and laid my bewildered head upon her shoulder mother dear you have no need to trouble about that horrid trousseau i said half laughing and half crying a change has come over the spirit of our dream mine and cyril's we have agreed that we don't quite suit each other or at least that we answer better as brother and sister than we ever could as husband and wife and so in the friendliest way we have agreed to part he is going to australia to look about him and i am going to stay with you i believe i was slightly hysterical after this and i felt very much ashamed of myself as i heard myself making a ridiculous noise without the power to stop poor mother kissed and comforted me and scolded me a little till i quieted down and then she sat by my side on our favourite sofa to discuss the situation this is very sudden daisy she said and i saw that she looked grave and troubled it seems sudden i answered but it has been in the air for some time ever since we left paris ever since you left paris repeated mother as if she saw a light you must have seen that i was reluctant to name any time for my marriage and that i didn't take the faintest interest in my trousseau yes i saw that and i thought it only meant that my daisy was less frivolous than most girls it meant that i was a hypocrite and an impostor that i allowed myself to be engaged to cyril out of sheer frivolity mere idle vanity which made me pleased to have an admirer for months past i have been chafing against my bonds and i cannot be too grateful to cyril for having set me free "'Did you ask him to release you?' inquired Mother, looking at me searchingly with her soft, serious eyes. I could not tell her a deliberate falsehood, but I could prevaricate, which I dare say is just as bad. "'There was no necessity for me to ask him,' I said. "'He understood my feelings. We understood each other perfectly. "'Don't ask any more questions, Mother Darling,' I pleaded, "'at least not about poor Cyril. "'He will be leaving us very soon, I fear.' "'Indeed, indeed.' There is no need for you to grieve, I urged, kissing her sweet, anxious face. It is better as it is. Is it, Daisy? she exclaimed sadly. I cannot quite think that. The change seems light to you, but it is a sad breaking up of home and family ties. The nest has been made ready for the birds, and now they are to part and scatter far and wide. This will be a blow for your stepfather. He was so proud of your engagement to Cyril, so happy in the thought of your future union the disappointment will be bitter for him and he is out of health and hardly in a condition to bear a great sorrow i am very sorry on his account i faltered but though i am not to be his daughter-in-law i shall always be his loving and obedient friend and pupil i can never forget all that he has been to me from my childhood until now i am glad of that daisy answered the dear mother her eyes filling with tears i should be very sorry if either you or i could be unthoughtful of the best friend widow and daughter ever had in the world the most unselfish the most forbearing you know that my marriage with ambrose arden was not a love match no woman can love a second husband as i loved your father it was a marriage of friendship of grateful affection of unqualified and admiring regard i wanted to make the remaining years of my friend's life as happy as a woman's tenderness could make them my only disappointment in this second marriage my only regret since my wedding-day has been the fear that in spite of all my care your stepfather has not been happy there is a little rift within the lute daisy and god knows how it came there it is none of my making dearest mother no wife on earth could do more to make a husband's life full of sunshine than you have done i told her if there is some touch of shadow mingled with the light you must not take it to heart Uncle Ambrose is a scholar and a recluse, a man of peculiar character and temperament, and you must not be surprised if he has intervals of melancholy brooding. A man who reads the modern metaphysicians can only be happy when he has no time for thought. Uncle Ambrose thinks too much, mother. That is the only evil. She kissed me fondly at this, and I felt somehow that our mutual confidences had drawn us nearer to each other than we had been since her marriage. Yes, Daisy, no doubt that is the evil ambrose has lived the scholar's life too long to be able to enjoy commonplace pleasures like other men he is too old to begin a new life he is like eugene aram eugene aram what am i thinking of daisy to compare my husband to a murderer ah but you meant it as a compliment i told her laughing eugene aram was such a delightful murderer the crime that darkens his past only deepens the interest in his character and by the time the mystery stands revealed the reader is devoted to the criminal that is only the glamour of the novelist daisy depend upon it the real aram was a smooth-faced canting hypocrite with murder lurking in his downcast eyes i cannot believe that any man capable of such a crime could ever win a noble-minded woman like madeline she would have shrunk from him instinctively We read Bulwer's romance together not long ago, and every detail of the story is still vivid in both our minds. My mother looked at the clock on the chimney-piece. A quarter to eight, Daisy, and we must dress for dinner, and after dinner I must tell your stepfather what has happened. He has no idea of it, I suppose. I think not. Poor Ambrose, I am sorry for him. No, love, I don't blame you or Cyril, she added hastily, as she saw my look of self-reproach it is not your fault either of you if you do not love each other well enough to take life-long vows it is better to have found out the truth in time but the disappointment will not be less bitter to cyril's father it pleased him to believe that his affection for me would be in a manner continued in the coming years by his son's union with my daughter i shall always be fond of cyril i said as a brother that has been my only mistake i fancied sisterly affection meant more than it really did before you left paris said my mother looking at me searchingly until i felt myself turning scorchingly red under that earnest examination run away and dress daisy i hear ambrose going upstairs to his dressing-room we shall all be late for dinner i ran to my room three steps at a time i felt happier than i had been at any time since we left venice in spite of all that had been done to make me happy i was sorry for cyril honestly and sincerely sorry but a burden was lifted off my heart and i could not wonder that it beat less heavily chapter twenty